Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. To have like all these 15 books build up and even just these five to have Zeus, not Zeus, <laughs> the Freudian slip of equating Rick with Zeus. everybody, and welcome to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we are officially completing our journey through the main series and discussing the final Trials of Apollo book, The Tower of Nero, along with a very special guest, my beloved Tumblr mutual and friend, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ashley. You might know me or probably most likely know me by New Athens on Tumblr.com. I'm a longtime Percy Jackson fan. And in terms of Trials of Apollo, it's it's, it's probably it personally ranks above uh, Heroes of Olympus for me in terms of Percy Jackson series rankings. So I am invested in this. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley and I have been uh, Tumblr mutual since the dawn of time and have seen many Roden releases come out together including the entire Trials of Apollo series. Yep. We counted down to Tower of Nero for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think you were also like one of the only people I knew for a long time who actually analyzed the books the same way that I did, especially Trials of Apollo. Like it was just the two of us posting for a while. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. It's like kind of shouting into a void during that time. I feel like it, it's always so much fun talking to Phoebe about, you know, the fandom history on Tumblr.com. 
Yeah, you've got two fandom historians here. I know. <laughs> Ask us anything. <laughs> oh my God. No, literally. I I feel like I've been in um, Percy Jackson fan base since like DeviantArt times. Ooh, like, yep. And I, I actually think I like ran one of the art things. Like I didn't make art, but like I would approve people's things in one of the groups. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. I, I don't think I knew that. <laughs> Maybe you were approving my art back then and I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into the book... Um, some quick announcements. First of all, our next episode is going to be the first episode of season two of Monster Donut, which is going to be us covering the TV show, along with some exclusive interviews with some of the creatives that we've gotten to do over the past couple weeks and are, cur- are currently still doing, which has been so amazing. But um, stay tuned for that. And we've also just started a Patreon, which we will have linked in our link tree, and you'll hear more info about at the end of the episode. Any initial reactions, because this was your first time reading this book, Emily? Yeah, well, I feel like I have very mixed feelings on this book, because on the one hand, I really enjoyed a lot of it. On the other hand, it felt like it was holding back a little bit. Hmm. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) But I feel like the first three books of this series did a really, really good job of really tying the physical trials and events that the characters are going through with their inner turmoil and really taking them to, like, a very extreme place. And I feel like these last two books haven't fully done that. Like, I feel like Apollo almost stopped developing as a character in, like, after Burning Maze, like, maybe a little after time. I don't know. I didn't feel like he... It felt more like he was like, this is who I am. Like, I didn't feel like he changed that much from the beginning of this book to the start of the book. I think that's... that. Those are my feelings. I did... This is where I'm controversial with you guys specifically, probably, is I did really like his little lap at the... I liked the... I liked... I like the little lab. No, I like the... I, I really like where all of the characters end this series. I really... Except for Leon Calypso, they need to break up. But, <laughs> but they're, like, on a break. It's coming. It's fine. Right, Raina was, like, reassuring him, like, don't worry, she'll come around. I was like, she won't. Also, the fact that it's, like, Raina being like, oh, she'll come around. Also, like, that line where Raina's like, and don't worry, I told him not to call her Mamacita. I was like, Rick, please, <laughs> Stop. <laughs> My, my first reaction was it was sort of like, nothing really surprised me, but I did enjoy it. Okay. Let's talk about it then. Okay. <laughs> so, we kick things off on the train from D.C. to New York, where Apollo and Meg are given a piece of their next prophecy by a snake monster, and are also momentarily captured by some of Nero's forces, including Meg's old sword fighting instructor, Lou. My main thought when I read through this scene, was that Lou sounded a lot like Luke, <laughs> because I can't not think about Luke. Oh my god. Um, and I, I just found it, like, a little bit healing to have, like, the sword fighting instructor not betray the 12-year-old, <laughs> even though you're unsure if they will. Oh my god, you're right. Incidentally, I looked up Lucas, the god that she's named after. Mm-hmm. Basically, we're gonna get into this a little bit, because I have a lot to say about Gauls in the Roman Empire, but... An interesting fun fact to that point is that, so when Caesar was writing De Bello Gallico, which is his, on the Gallic Wars, was when he's conquering Gaul, France, Gaius Julius Caesar, who would have been Nero's, like, dis, like ancestor, essentially. He's sort of the founding member of the Julio-Claudian dynasty, which Nero is the final member of. But he wrote about the Gaul, Gallic, like, Celtic pantheon, 
which had nine members, one of whom was Lugus, who he equated to Mercury in their pantheon. Like, he thought they were kind of similar. And they are also, by the way, are an Indo-European pantheon. So I'm, like, sitting here like, oh, Rick, did you do something else? Of course he did. I feel like he's always doing something else. (laughs) When she was first introduced, though, I was like, Boudicca? Who is a historical figure who is really badass, but I digress. No, I was going to say, now that you mentioned that, um, Lou really, in terms of badass, Lou really reminds me of Clarice. Like, I just got a very sudden, like, Mm. I'm like, not that she really has anything to do, but I just enjoy the presence that Clarice brings, and I feel like Lou has a very similar presence. I think also because of a little bit of her relationship with Nero versus Clarice's relationship with Ares. Mm -hmm. Totally. And that sort of, like, duty versus doing what you feel is right my biggest takeaway from this scene first of all i was like hold on monsters are just going to jobs and commuting that's a thing now like you can be a member of the mythological world and just live in your life i need to know what his story is I like, know. <laughs> who was he <laughs> why is he working in baltimore he's got a wife did his wife mourn does she know does she know who told her <laughs> Why wasn't she on that little, like, tour at the end that Apollo took? Oh my god! That that whole... This character in this moment, I do feel like set a really interesting tone for the book. Because basically what happens is, there's this two-headed snake, and Apollos and Meg are both sitting there like, is this a monster? Are we gonna have to deal with this? And then the snake's eyes start glowing, and it gives Apollo part of his prophecy. And then the, the snake, like, kind of comes out of the prophecy and is like, oh... Oh no, I missed my stop. My wife's gonna kill me. And then there's a line where it says, but his wife wouldn't kill him because a crossbow bolt from one of like Nero's people kills him instead. And it's written like a joke, but it's just so sad. That moment I was like, oh wow. So we're still maintaining that like, we're no longer into dark humor at this point. Like that wasn't even a dark comedy moment. That was just a really sad moment. At least that's how Mm -hmm. I kind of read it. So Lou manages to help them engineer their escape from the train, even though Apollo doesn't fully trust her. And they end up on the Upper East Side, very close to the Jackson apartment. And Meg suggests going to visit Percy again to seek refuge. Although Apollo is very reluctant to go. Yes. I feel like this is where we start seeing, like, if, if he has changed in any shape or form, it, at least in this final book, this is where we start seeing his change because his reluctance to burden anybody else with anything. Like, he's very much, like, at the beginning of the book, he's very much like, I can handle everything, I have to do everything. He's gotten that, like, demigod, like, mindset. He's like, I don't want to, I don't need anybody else's help. And I feel like that's where this starts. Yeah, seeing this moment where we go back to, like, the exact same kind of setup as uh, that opening, I think it's even, like, almost the exact same chapter where Meg and Apollo first went to Percy's apartment in the first book and seeing that scene play out yet again and then also... It's, it reminded me also of them going to, like, see Piper or see Jason. Mm. And, he, and you can see his growing reluctance as you look at, like, each of those encounters <laughs> to go and tell these people to join him. No, I think it even might be the same. I'm not going to lie. I, and this might just be a headcanon, but I think it even might be the same alley in The Hidden Oracle. It feels like the same alley that he fell into because he literally notes a dumpster when he looks around the alleyway. Mm. And then he's like wait, this looks familiar. And then Meg is like, we're right by Percy's house. So I feel like I want to believe that it's the same exact alley that he fell into. But they do go uh, to Percy's apartment. Percy is not there, unfortunately. Do you remember how hard I was theorizing? Yes! <laughs> Before this oh one came God. out. 
<laughs> I wanted so badly for him to be there. All right, give me, give me the lore. Give me the lore. What happened? Well, the the preview before this book came out was the first three chapters, and the last chapter ends with like, let's go to Percy's apartment. And so I was like, oh my god, we're gonna see Percy. This is gonna be crazy because like he doesn't know that Jason died, and like this is this is it, guys. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see his reaction in lifetime. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> um, instead, we get Sally and Paul and Estelle, who is uh, Percy's new baby sister. Yeah, I, I did have Estelle's existence spoiled for me by somebody. Like, I mean, obviously I knew she was pregnant, but I didn't know, like, the, the fact that she's in the last book was spoiled for me. I saw, maybe I saw something on Twitter or something where people were, where I just saw, like, people theorizing that Estelle was, like, Poseidon's kid. I think that's what actually <laughs> spoiled me. I was like, oh, that's weird. Interesting. Okay. Why do people think that? That's so bizarre. <laughs> Ashley spoiled you without even knowing you. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I hesitate to take any, like, credit for any headcanon, but, like, I really feel like I hadn't seen the Estelle Hannah canon until I had, like, posted about it and, like, it had gone crazy. And, like, it was just my fan. Like, this is, like, my fantasy. I was like, oh, my God, they're still together. One big sea, sea god household. And then, like, as people, people were either, like, harshly rejected it or they were like, no, you're making sense. And, like, it's just, it's kind of off the rails since then. Here's the thing, though. It's like, so I said to Phoebe, why do people think that? That's kind of weird. And Phoebe was like, well, you'll see when you get to it. But her description's kind of weird. And I'm sitting here like, how could that be that weird? And then I read this description and I was like, yeah, that is kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> it's almost, it's it's so weird that it couldn't ha- it couldn't not be purposeful. Like he very clearly made her look this way. I just, that's what I believe. I'm like, there's, there's come on. Why did he choose these specific features? Percy's yeah. specific features. Percy's sea green eyes. Yeah. Like, what is that about? <laughs> That's my Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My Roman Empire is the fact that she's playing with a blue plastic donut. I also made a note of that. I was like, blue monster donut cameo? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I haven't decided whether I'm a Sally Poseidon solely that's their kid. (laughs) I don't know if I'm that kind of truther. I might be a this child is somehow Poseidon, Paul, and Sally's. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's setting it up like I'm 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 a post Sally Estelle truther like all the way. I mm-hmm. it drives me crazy and they really I feel like this is when like this is our first time meeting her and I really enjoy the way uh, um Apollo describes her like how she can rule the world and he keeps mentioning her throughout the book and like just theories aside I feel like she's just like this little spark of hope for him, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot with kids in this book, honestly. Like, that was sort of a theme I was picking up on as sort of this incoming next generation. Yep. Which also felt really apropos considering the show coming out as well, where we're about to hopefully get like so many new like kids that are Percy's age discovering the series for the first time through the show. Um, and, like, also seeing, like, all the new kids coming in at Camp Half-Blood that are that age. It's just, like, felt really exciting to me of, like, oh, yeah, the next generation, they're here. And they don't, they don't know it yet, but they're in for it. <laughs> <laughs> they're in for the ride of a lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. And then you kind of get the inverse of that as well with, like, Nero's kids, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, because I have some stuff to say about that. But that, that's definitely, like, a piece of this book is, like, this incoming, the incoming, like, inheritors of this world essentially definitely i think i had a slightly different reaction to them than okay you did. but i guess we'll get to that when we get to camp 
after the Jackson's apartment, Lou convinces them of their plan, and she takes them to this building, and she said that the building beside it will have great camera footage, because Nero has, like, pretty much the whole city, or half the city, um, wired. Hmm. And that's where Apollo throws her off the roof. Yeah, which Apollo does a little bit too hard. Yeah. Uh, so they take the Grey Sisters cab to camp, and when they arrive, Apollo passes out. And has a dream where he learns that they basically have a deadline of 48 hours before Nero does something terrible from Lou, who has survived. He, she survived the her fall, barely, it seems. Yeah. She's in a bad way. She's in a bad way. Yeah. And she's been brought back into the household, um, the Imperial household. And we also get to see uh, Meg's 11 adoptive siblings. Mm-hmm. Which is so creepy to me. I mean... Yeah. I feel so bad, like, we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about them later, but I feel so bad for them. And just, like, every time I catch glimpses of, like, Nero's operation and the kids and all of that, I just can't help but think, like, what was his future plans for after this? Mm-hmm. It, and, like, how much, like, he really must have been planning for centuries. Like, there's just such a huge world of it. It baffles me every time, even at the end of the series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking about that, like, as soon as Emily explained that like emperors were often adopted into the imperial family instead of like born into it i just oh my god i i I was like hang on and i I just kept thinking about these scenes that were coming Mm. and so getting to read them knowing that i was like what was the plan with these kids what was going on here nero has an interesting history as well with this because he and commodus both rose to power when they were both quite young nero i think was named successor and i think became emperor when he was 16 like young young isn't it there's a lot here with it because what i kind of took away reading through all this which we might get into a little bit later is it feels a lot to me like nero is perpetuating a lot of his upbringing in this way as uh you know even i think is mentioned in the book like way later like abuse is also cyclical because Nero had a really overbearing quite famously manipulative and conniving mother named Agrippina so she sort of intended to use him as a pawn we think in her own kind of succession plans because uh, she essentially married the emperor that was there's the emperor that was in between Caligula and Nero was named Claudius and he was a pretty good emperor by all accounts um, but she kind of conspired to marry him and actually had him displace his own biological son Britannicus in favor of Nero being the successor. It is interesting to me that he's like perpetuating these traditions still of like adopting these kids, raising them in a very overbearing way, forcing them into a lot of like really bad situations. I I did think one theme that was really interestingly developed in this book was the relationship as Meg and Apollo of Meg and Apollo and their relationships to their respective fathers. Yep. There's so much to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know know if we can, like, get into that already. (laughs) Yeah, when we actually get into, like, Meg going home and Apollo going home. Yeah. That's, most of my notes are about that. (laughs) The majority of them. Although, like, I would say that around these scenes in the, in camp, because Apollo spent some time in camp after this, um, there's a moment where he's talking to the arrow, Mm. and the arrow asks uh, not to be taken back to the grove of Dodona because uh, its quest isn't done yet and it would be like a humiliation to return now. Like there was sort of this homecoming theme of like, you know, Meg returning to her adoptive family and the Imperial household and Apollo returning to Olympus and like them having to complete these 
quests or like the, all of these people who are within that family looking at them differently when they come home. Yeah. Although the arrow obviously doesn't uh, make it back. But well, maybe maybe it does. It's like it's like the, it's it could have. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I made a note of a line. Apollo was talking to Meg in the forest um, at one point, and she says that she feels like she has to go back to Nero's tower because she feels like going back is the only way to see how strong that she's gotten. And then Apollo remarks, change is a fragile thing. It requires time and distance. Survivors of abuse like Meg have to get away from their abusers. Going back to that toxic environment was the worst thing that she could do. It's actually so funny that you like underline that because I underlined the one like right above it, the assuming I made it back to Mount Olympus, could I remember what it was like to be human or would I slip back into mm. being the self-centered God I used to be? Yeah. And that's something that, like, he thinks about constantly in this yeah. book, is just the worry that when he gets back to Olympus, he won't be able to remember. Th that he is going to change over the years, over the centuries, yeah. and will leave this experience behind. Which I feel like she has a sense of, like, certainty that, like, it is lying within her, and I feel like Apollo is completely uncertain. He's like, no, I definitely feel like I'm going to screw up the second I become a god again. Like, I'm just going to forget. Yeah, this this line reminded me of uh, a, a moment from... Uh, the Hidden Oracle, when Apollo was talking to Rhea. And Rhea says, the point is you have to persevere. Sometimes change takes centuries. Mm. And Apollo says, except that I'm mortal now, I don't have centuries. And Rhea says, but you have willpower, you have mortal drive and urgency. Those are things the gods often lack. Mm. I feel like Apollo's fear probably does come the, from the fact that they have those centuries, but don't have the mortal drive and urgency to make change and to let change happen. You know, the change might not take hold without the the drive and urgency but that is something that meg has and so she's able to hold on to that and have confidence in that because she knows you know she has that within her now while apollo knows that like over the years he might lose some of that because that's something that the gods just don't have mm -hmm. this was the part where i thought apollo and meg together as sort of reflections of each other are really interesting because they're both kind of able especially apollo are able to see the experience of having an abusive father from an outside perspective through each other and be able to start to understand how their own lives have been shaped by that. And it was this part that made me, that I felt like really expanded on that a lot in an interesting way to me, where they all, what they also have in common is that fear of reverting back to the people they were once they're back under the influence of the people they used to be under the influence of. Mm -hmm. And I, I really liked that Meg was able, because I think for the other part of them, I think Apollo is the one who's been more helping Meg heal and grow out of that part of herself and like come to understand that part of herself and like get better. Versus I think here, Meg is helping Apollo a lot more, where she's the one who's got a lot more confidence in her ability to not revert back to that person and to like have grown from this experience and to like be able to sort of separate herself from her abuser under her own power it really like flipped the switch like the tone mm. it's like apollo was like so nervous he's like i don't want to go or i just want me to go or like i don't know what's gonna happen and then like meg kind of decides for them yeah like, she, they have this conversation and she's just so sure of what to do it's like no question like we have to do this kind of thing and i wonder mm. if this is why i had I kept feeling reading this book like, oh, we're not quite a, like, we're not, this isn't the main thing yet. Because I feel like what's actually being set up also in this scene is the fact that Apollo's greatest challenge in this series isn't facing Nero, isn't facing Python, it's facing going home. 
Yep. Yes. I did make a note around this point also while we were at camp of what you mentioned earlier, which was the next generation. Mm. Because this is when, like, Apollo meets his kids, like, his, his new children who just showed up at camp. And he also, while hanging out with, like, Will and Austin and probably Kayla, they're looking at the younger generation saying, like, oh, they're so young. Were we ever that young? And he also has a line at this point where he's looking at the kids at camp and thinking of, like, what it will look like if he fails and what it looks like now and how the kids at camp look at the gods now. But yeah, we'll get back to that. So they get their quest and head off to find Rachel because according to the line, the new lines of the prophecy that they've gotten, it's all got to start with a dare, which Will figures out immediately. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't remember that that was how that went. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, you've read it before. I told you, I did not remember so much of this book. So we go to see Rachel, who is living in a big fancy house in New York. I, I really like how this book really ties in like that like wealth of like billionaire level wealth, gods, all of it is sort of one and the same and like power and how it's displayed. I had the exact same thought, yeah. There's a lot of rich, terrible dads yeah. <laughs> in mm-hmm. this book. Something about the Rachel storyline in this that I guess I could say I have I guess it, I would say I have a complaint about is that I wish like She's clearly in danger, like, Python comes through her, like, he's in her mind. I just feel like, and this leads into the Python storyline as well, it just, I didn't see enough of it. Yeah. Um, and I would like to have seen more, and I actually have something in my notes, and I, it's literally, why is Python here with a dot 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 and question mark? And it's just like, I feel like his presence isn't felt enough in this book, especially when he's, like, a main antagonist. And I feel like one of the ways we could have seen that is through Rachel, like not just her being ominous, but like maybe her having a make a Stalin situation, like clearly being on the brink of like some like mental torture, being completely like split from herself and stuff like that. And I I enjoy like Rachel in this just because I also love Rachel. She's great. I could I could always have more of her, but like meeting her just also is a constant reminder that like there's this other part of this entire book that is going on that we're just not seeing enough of like it's Nero and then Python is supposed to be the one controlling Nero and I just feel like it's not really there all the way and this is where it starts coming up yeah I actually feel that way about this entire series that Python wasn't a big enough presence like he's just this inevitable faded battle at the end of the series but the story so far has had very little to do with him and so I think really emphasizing that presence in Rachel's head and like using her as a sort of ticking clock like hers a a rabbit decline that's a good idea well maybe this is the time to bring up a line I flagged from much earlier in the book which is when Apollo is thinking about the two-headed serpent guy and he says how horrible it was that he just happened to have this terrible fate quote all because a prophecy made him its pawn and I saw the word pawn and I was like (laughs) Phoebe's calling card (laughs) Because so far in each series, we have had the word pawn used to describe main characters in regards to the big bad, right? Kronos has a pawn, Kronos is pawns, Gaia's pawns, do not be a pawn of the Olympians. And I think in this series, we've never really gotten a pawn line. So it was interesting to me that prophecy is the thing that has pawns in this series explicitly, not the emperors, not Python even. Which, and I could be making this up. He could, there, there could be a pawn reference earlier in this series, but it would be very cool if there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Let me check. There are actually only two times that the word pawn is used in this series before this. Once is in the Burning Maze when Apollo says that the worst thing about all of this is the fact that Meg might end up being used by Nero as a pawn in his game. And the other one is Apollo talking about the uh, the Sybil and Harpocrates, who he says are, are pawns of the emperors. And I think there's also one at the end of this book that I remember. When Apollo realizes that the power, when he kills one of the emperors, goes back to like the other emperors. Yeah. And like he realizes that uh, when Nero is like, you know, begging not to be killed because the power is going to go back to Python. And he realizes that like all of the emperors are kind of pawns of Python at the end of the day, which I mean, then is like pawns of prophecy in a different way because yeah. it's Python. So I thought it was interesting how prophecy speaks through people's mouths a lot in this book involuntarily. Linguistically as well, there's a huge connection, obviously, between the Pythia, the oracle of Delphi, and Python. So like Rachel kind of speaks with Python's voice. I will say, jumping off the pawns of the prophecy, I feel like and this is jumping ahead, that also really fits into what Zeus says at the end to Apollo, or what Apollo notes is that, like, Zeus is unsure of what exactly happened in Tartarus because his sight couldn't reach that far, Mm -hmm. and then he also mentions the fates, and I think Apollo mentions that even Zeus's power does not extend to that of the fates, and I feel like that does connect to even the gods are pawns of prophecy Mm -hmm. and fate. Mm -hmm. So it definitely is there. Yeah. So then they see these weird cows, And I thought these were really funny, purely because I think there's like a tiny reference to one of my favorite Romans making shit up and being like, yeah, that's right, definitely, and writing it in their bestiary examples. (laughs) Because I think the fact that the bulls getting put in a tunnel and then like choking on their anger is a reference to this. One of my favorite one-off bits of knowledge um, is that there was apparently a sanctuary in Turkey to some of the gods. Priests would take bulls into this cave and then after a few minutes or however the bulls would like suffocate and just fall over dead and the the guy the priests that had brought them in would be completely fine and come out and they'd be like behold a miracle craziness this is a sacrifice to a god and i think this is what this is referencing nowadays though we have a very interesting theory which is that there was some kind of volcanic vent or something in these particular caves and it would release carbon monoxide and so the bulls because they breathe much lower to the ground would have died of carbon monoxide poisoning, but the humans that were holding them because it sits low would have been unaffected. Or maybe it wasn't carbon monoxide, but another kind of um, noxious gas from a volcanic vent. But I just love that Rick was like, no, the choking on the anger thing, that's definitely how these guys die. (laughs) But uh, they end up getting chased by these cows underground into the realm of these beings that apparently Nico has seen before, troglodytes, who Apollo thinks or thought up until this point were a complete fabrication totally made up by mortals just a complete myth i do love this i also like have clocked before that a kind of interesting thing we keep seeing in this particular series with the mythological beings is that a lot of them are like alternative humanoid peoples so we've got the troglodytes we've got the blemii we've got um those wolfmen that nero have the wolfmen So I do think it is really interesting that we're presenting these sort of like alternative realities almost of like, no, humans aren't even the only beings that kind of live in this world the way we do. I do also enjoy the troglodytes. 
They're very, they're, they're funny little guys. And no matter how many times Rick puts descriptors in, or even if he says claws or something, I can't help but just picture the frogs from Meet the Robinses, the Disney movie. <laughs> That's the only thing I picture when I think about the troglodytes, is just those frogs in their little suits. And then the hats don't help because then they have, then they're really presentable. And that's the only way I can picture them. So as I'm reading the series, it's always, it's very entertaining whenever the troglodytes show up. Are they that short in your head? Yeah, a little. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I think they come up to like, they're almost as tall as Meg, so probably like four feet. But no, they're still like, in my head, it's like a bunch of demigods standing around a bunch of like thigh level little frogs. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only way I see it. I do really like the way their culture, their, like their their interactions are in this book as well, because they're very reminiscent of, like the way they sort of operate is very reminiscent of like ancient Greek guest rights and stuff of like, oh, we might kill you, but also we'll feed you and now you have guest rights. And they keep being like, the ancient Greek writers would be very like, they'd have very particular things where they'd be like, ugh, can't believe those barbarians over there don't do this very particular thing. Um, and so there's like the way it's written really reminds me of like a lot of ancient Greek writers talking of like, it felt very like funny to me that Apollo is like, these are a completely fictional society. I've never even heard of these guys before. And they act so ancient Greek. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> this is also where I wrote down the big quote that I think we all had in our notes. I'm sure. I have, <laughs> I, I have a massive paragraph in my notes right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a great conversation that Rachel and Apollo have. I just, I love all of the, this is another reason I wish there was more Rachel in this book, is that I love all of the interactions between Apollo and Rachel. Like, their relationship is really fascinating to watch, just to see him, like, interact with his oracle throughout the book yeah. instead of, you know, he has such such messy relationships with all of the different oracles, such different relationships with all the different oracles, and this one is just something special, I think. But the massive paragraph in my notes is on page 176. Rachel says that this is how we make things right. And then Apollo has a bit of a spiral just trying to think of like, what does that even mean? How do you make things right at this point? And thinks to himself, mortals and gods had one thing in common. We were notoriously nostalgic for the good old days. We were always looking back to some magical golden time before something, before everything went bad. I remembered sitting with Socrates back around 425 BC and griping to each other about how the younger generations were ruining civilization. As an immortal, of course, I should have known that there never were any good old days. The problems humans face never really change because mortals bring their own baggage with them. The same is true of gods. Uh, I wanted to go back to a time before all the sacrifices had been made, before I had experienced so much pain, but making things right could not mean re rewinding the clock. Even Kronos hadn't had that much power over time. I suspected that wasn't what Jason Grace would want either. When he told me to remember being human, he'd meant building on pain and tragedy, overcoming it, learning from it. That was something gods never did. We just complained. Yeah. I actually underlined the right after it, which was to be human is to yeah. move forward, to adapt, to believe yeah. in your ability to make things better. And then, which at the end of this really grinds my gears, is where... Um, the strange thing was, I meant it, a world in which the future was controlled by a giant reptile, where hope was suffocated, where heroes sacrificed their lives for nothing, and the pain and hardship could not yield a better life. That seemed much worse than a world without Apollo, which, that yep. ending one. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that I wrote down in relation to this was that it just made me think of Luke. Mm -hmm. Of course. Of course. Once again. <laughs> Because of that explicit Kronos reference. 
and the fact that like this is what luke was searching for and that this was like his this was his mistake like we talked about yeah that his plans were built on the idea that things might have been purer or more honest before the gods came and that Kronos could help create a new golden age and that he was looking back for answers which I, I liked that I was being reminded of that in this as like the last book of the three series and like seeing Apollo come to that realization at the end of all of it um like very explicitly like you know this is why Luke's revolution couldn't have worked but like like let's figure out what we can do instead because the gods will never really do that on their own and just like coming full circle on all of that mm. I thought it was really interesting that Apollo says that Cronus basically never would have had that power. That was straight. That that part was really striking to me, just because thinking about Luke again and thinking about how badly he wanted it to happen, and how the whole time, even Cronus, essentially, if this is to be believed, knew he was making a false promise. Yeah, I was thinking of the line more like literally that like Cronus couldn't take you back in time. Mm to before any of this and like i'm sure he used that line on luke and was like maybe i can't rewind the clock but i can Mm. get us to some you know i can i can take us to a place where it's almost like none of it happened i'm also going to go back to my house of hades notes because anytime nostalgia comes up in this series i keep thinking about that one hazel quote so i'm gonna find it I'm gonna, I read this on the podcast. I'm going to read it again. She'd spent decades with the dead, lamenting past lives that were only half-remembered, distorted by nostalgia. The dead saw what they believed they would see. So did the living. Pluto was the god of the underworld, the god of wealth. Maybe those two spheres of influence were more connected than Hazel had realized. There wasn't much difference between longing and greed. If she could summon golden diamonds, why not summon another kind of treasure? A vision of the world that people wanted to see. And what I really like about this quote is just this idea that nostalgia is the thing that distorts the realities of your memories even because it's the lens through which you view your past and it's interesting to me because it is often the elites that are holding on to the past because they're holding on to the periods of time where they were able to build and consolidate their power and the existential fear of moving ahead to them is the fear of losing that so i always like think that connection of like wealth and nostalgia and people holding on to only what they want to remember and what they want to see is really important throughout this whole series. Yeah, it, it, it kind of traps people. This whole quote, I feel, is connected to what we were talking about earlier with change and Apollo's fear that things won't change and he won't be able to remember what it was like to be human. Like, over the years, all of this might end up getting colored by nostalgia and he'll just be, like, sitting back and thinking about how things were better in the good old days and he'll just end up caught in the cycle again but i want to talk about the part that ashley brought up because i think that part's really telling just the fact that apollo describes the world under python basically exactly the way that the world already is with like heroes dying and suffering for nothing like that's already happening yeah like maybe because he doesn't have that past experience of like other demigods like he's like well, if I have to give myself up so, you know, like, everything will be fine and if and heroes can, you know, make a better world, then so be it. But, I like like you said, he doesn't realize that, like, he doesn't have to give up his life. They're already sacrificing things and not getting anything out of it. Yeah. But I think this is another thing that's just all tied up in the way that this book ends. So we'll probably come back to this. So Meg and Apollo go to Nero's Tower to give themselves up in a moment that's very reminiscent of entering the Empire State Building. 
Mm. And uh, when they eventually meet Nero, they see him standing there with his 11 children. I think this is actually the point where Apollo remarks that, like, Meg is the missing 12th child and that Mm. he is the missing 12th child and... He actually compares Nero to Kronos instead of Zeus, which was surprising to me. Yeah, which is crazy. Like, Apollo was aware that Zeus is bad at this point, but I feel like, is he not seeing, is he not realizing that Nero is just, like, copy and pasting his own father? Does he just, like, not want to real? like, does he want to ignore that and say, no, he's, he's Kronos, he's, he's my evil grandfather, not my father who's just, like, a dickhead, you know? It It was a strange comparison because I was like, then does that make Meg Zeus? Like, <laughs> I mean, kind of. Like, if she's, she's strong enough, you know. It was just strange to me where I was like, you could have easily made it eleven children, and now there are ten, and he's made himself Zeus, and the rest of the kids are the Olympians. But I don't think he would ever want to put himself on the same level as them as Olympians. Mm. And so it makes sense for him to be thinking, "Oh, I'll be Kronos." But then it's like you're begging for your kids to overthrow you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like maybe in his head. I don't know, maybe he was, in his own way, trying to avoid that prophecy, like the prophecy of patricide. He's like, well, if I separate myself from them, and also you said the adopting, like if I make myself as separate as possible, Mm. then maybe that won't happen to me, even if I act like their father. But I just, it it does, any time that Kronos' name appears in this series, I feel like it's so important. I feel like Kronos is not a name you pull out unless you want to make a point kind of thing. Yeah. It's like the golden eyes in Mark of Athena that are there for no reason. And you're like, why did you do that to me? (laughs) I went ballistic when that happened in Mark of Athena. I was like, a son of Zeus? The big three sons being possessed by by Kronos? But no, no, No. that didn't happen. I thank God at least, you know? (laughs) (laughs) The use of Cassius in this scene is crazy. (laughs) And the way he treats him... Yeah. It's chilling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like the image of Lou being like forced down in an eight year old who yeah. Nero has indoctrinated using Meg's swords to cut off her hands in front yeah. of everyone is like, it's shocking. It's that was, I, d- I don't like this figure, man. So I was just like, what the? And then he describes like Lou, like this big woman. Like, not only does he describe like them forcing her leg braces to bend, mm-hmm. he also like describes her like just scream. And, and Apollo's like, I don't know who's screaming, me, Meg, or Lou. And I'm like, oh my god, this woman is in so much severe pain. I just, I had to stop. Like, I had to put the book down the first time I read that. Yeah. And um, running back to Cassius really quickly, the way that Nero treats him, it just feels very symbolic or even just, like, mimicking the dynamic that we've seen sus- thus far in, like, all of these series, like, Luke and and Kronos and Gaia and maybe maybe Gaia and Leo and not in, like, a manipulative way. He's just, like, mm. petrified of her. Mm. Um, and it's even, like, mimicking Apollo and Zeus at that point it's just like the like the evil elder and like this young child and it's just like that pattern of manipulation is so very vivid there to the reader it's just it reminds me of everything I think it's also like a really good really explicit showing of like this is how a cycle of abuse is perpetuated it's by this it's by doing horrible things to people and making them also participate in horrible things like it's all part of it yeah, the descriptions of the abuse, like Nero's specific abuse, were really interesting to me in this book because he is so like like there's a point, I think it's the conversation that he has with Meg later on mm-hmm. where it just goes on for pages and you can see him working for like, yeah. you know, two or three pages. It's like you can just see and you can feel how this happens because like he's doing these these horrible terrible things and like the kid can see it, but he just like 
talks through it in like such an elegant way <laughs> for nero at least like talking is his weapon because like commodus and caligula they're both fighters at least commodus tries um <laughs> they're they're both fighters and that's how they win their battles meanwhile nero's is like every time he goes into battle quotations around battle it's usually like especially with meg he's calming her down and he's talking his way through like warming his way into her mind and like he has other people to kill apollo and stuff like that and like you get so much of it that you start the reader starts to feel like they're suffocated by it and i just reading this scene where we have like that this scenario play out and we also have you know us come in and immediately make the connection of the 12 olympians and like this is basically the throne room reading this and knowing that like this is what apollo is going home to too and like mm. that parallel that we set up throughout this entire series but really like drive home in this book yeah. i feel like i spent the whole book thinking like how is he going to go home like what what can happen when he goes home what can he possibly do when he has to go home mm -hmm. this book is so strange <laughs> <laughs> it's all over the place <laughs> like it's just the, we'll get to it but like the fact that we just like <laughs> hammer that in over and over and over yeah i mean that's and what it, it's it, setting up it's like this whole book the big bad is zeus it's not python that's <laughs> it's not at all like it's all him and he we'll get to it but it's just the fact that like it's very clearly Zeus, and then nothing really happens. Yeah. That just, it's, there's no words for it. It's like, it's like you feel like, kind of like the rug got pulled out from under you. Yeah. So, after after this traumatic scene, Apollo is taken back to the, the prison floor, which was actually their goal. Their, their goal was to, at some point, get arrested and end up yes. on the prison floor, because that's also where the whatever it's called is. Yeah. <laughs> the axe. But Lou was also supposed to help them, so her punishment was definitely much harsher than she was anticipating for everything. Yeah. And it's at this point that Apollo has a dream. He dreams that he's sitting at the taco shop, the, the place where they went before they went on their ship heist. My first thought while reading this, because we've been reading all of these books back to back, was of the Thalia dreams from the first and second book. Mm. Because it's like this dead child of Zeus who sacrificed themselves and so like kind of made all of this happen because of that, um, sitting there with the narrator and like warning them. Like in the first book we had Thalia sitting with Percy and saying like, well one of us has to get out of here and like kind of pushing him forward. And so it, it made me wonder, because I always wonder when I read those Thalia dreams, like, are we actually talking to Thalia right now? And so I reading this, I was like, are we actually talking to Jason right now? Is this Jason in any way? Or is this just a dream? The first time I read it, I like so, like, and I feel like I knew it, but I so deeply wanted it to be Jason. But I always knew, like, and now that I reread it, like, I am firmly of the um, answer that it is, it is indeed not Jason. It is completely a dream. I feel like it's Apollo's subconscious trying to help himself or comfort himself or still feeling guilty about Jason. And it's it's so heartbreaking because you want it so badly to be Jason. But I feel like Jason wouldn't say, I'm just a dream in your head, man. I feel like mm. he wouldn't say that. So I, it's definitely, I feel like it's definitely not Jason. Mm. I, I, I think I underlined, you're important. I said, your life, and Jason tilted his head. I mean, sure, but if a hero isn't ready to lose everything for a greater cause, is that person really a hero? I feel like that is very much something Jason would say. But again, it could just be the thoughts and ideas that Jason was able to instill in Apollo in that short time, just coming back up out of his subconscious. I, I also, I agree that I don't think this is Jason. I do think that Thalia dreams are Thalia. Mm. <laughs> 
But the line that you read, the if a hero isn't ready to lose everything for a greater cause, is that person really a hero? I put a big star next to that one for a couple of reasons. One is that we've been talking a bit about like how we define heroism in this series, because I feel like it's very complex this time around, because this idea of like sacrifice was something that Apollo was really bothered by in the burning maze when Meg said said basically the same thing that Jason says here that like that's what a hero does they sacrifice and so this feels like the development of that a little bit and then I also was thinking about the Percy Jason you know two different types of heroism going on here because like Jason says this like if you're not ready to lose everything for a greater cause are you really a hero and that's like literally what Percy's fatal flaw is is that he would not lose everything for a greater cause mm. that yeah. like he would sacrifice the world to save a, to save a friend and so that's just that definition just can't apply to like the other main hero of the series mm. but percy's not the one who chose to go with apollo so that's not the type of heroism that apollo learned from which is good i think because this is what he had to learn in becoming mortal was like the value of life and what it means that so many heroes are then asked to give that up and why they might still choose to do that and at this point he's fully like he he really expects to sacrifice himself by the end of this book yeah which is really interesting to me because i think skipping ahead like not ahead a lot but we also find out through this dream that the next thing apollo is going to have to do is face yes this is the part of the book that made me scream. <laughs> <laughs> the return of Mithras. My jaw dropped. We had a whole conversation about Mithras for context, Ashley. <laughs> In Mark of Athena, you know when uh, Annabeth goes into that like it's sort of like like a temple with a bunch of people who are having a like a bunch of ghosts who are having a, a cult meeting. I feel like you're dredging up memories that I I definitely feel like I, I know what you're it's talking about. It's a very minor scene. It's a very minor scene <laughs> in Mark of Athena uh-huh. when she's going through her part of the quest. But I when we were talking about it, I paused us there to like analyze the, the drawings on the wall, basically, <laughs> that were in that scene. And we just spent like entirely too much time talking about Mithras. <laughs> More time than anyone needed to be spending <laughs> talking about Mithras and ended up like deciding that every character was actually like a representation of a different aspect of like the rituals you had to go through to be a part of this cult. It was a whole thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and it all pays okay. off now. And it all paid off. I was shocked that he was in this book. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was dying. I was like, yes. But um, we find out that there's this, it's called a Leontocephaline, which just means lion head, um, who's like the guardian of the immortality of Mithras, who also has a snake, who's like guarding Nero's Fasces, which is like the source of his godly power. And we find out from Jason in this dream, I I wrote this quote down because I was like, this is poetic. It's like, you have to pay a a price when bargaining with the guardian of the stars, which is like, what a line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my first thought when I read that was that we were talking about Zeus. Because I was like, oh, Sky God, and there's a, a price to be paid, and Jason was, like, part of a bargain, basically. I'm, I'm putting the pieces together, and, like, next page, they were like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> and so I w- I'm reading this, and I was like, oh, I wonder what the price is, because they're making it out like it's an impossible price, but then we find out that it's giving up immortality. And this is how I think we know that Apollo's character is really 
Like, I think in a different version of this series, Apollo would not be at this point yet, and this would be the hard choice he has to make in the final book of the series. But we're midway through the book, and it's not a question to him. He's like, of course I'm going to do it. And I think this conversation with Jason also, like, reinforces that, where he's like, of course, of course I'm going to be like Jason. I'm going to be a hero like Jason is. I'm going to do this for everybody, because that's what's right. And so it was interesting to me that Lou is the one who is going to go do it instead mm-hmm. because like Apollo and I think the reason is be, in the narrative is because Apollo is already completely willing to do it and so it's not going to be narratively satisfying to do see him do that and Lou has a better plan anyway so Apollo heads upstairs this is when everyone sort of converges on the tower of Nero and there's another sort of battle going on with all of the campers I just wrote in all caps with a million question marks Chiron told the newbies it was a field trip I know. I was like, Kyron, I didn't think he could get worse, and somehow he has. They've got like these 12 year olds (laughs) that have never like held a sword before, just like in another battle of Manhattan. I can't. Anyway. It felt so strange after how devastating the battle with Camp Jupiter was in the last book. I know. Like, like in the last book, every life was one you could feel in the balance on the battlefield, and then this was all just like a joke. Yeah, I actually wrote a note. I was like, it was treating war as a rarity for demigods versus in Tower of Nero. It's treating it as commonplace. Mm. Yeah. Like, sure, they go on quests, but I feel like this this was definitely a choice for a Chiron to, like, switch up suddenly and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring all these little kids. It'll be a training exercise. Like, I'm super happy they're here. Whereas I feel like in the beginning of the Chronicles, he was always very much like, no, you shouldn't go, like, even if you have to, like, I'm petrified for you, like, this is very serious stuff. I I feel like if this had been any other members of Camp Half-Blood there, I would have been okay with it. Mm. <laughs> but it's the fact that Chiron is bringing specifically, like, the new generation that we keep talking about, this new generation of demigods into the fight. And, like, we've been having all these thoughts and conversations around, like, maybe the next generation will be different, maybe we'll be able to make a change, and then we're just, like, throwing the next generation into an extremely dangerous battle with no warning and, like, probably completely traumatizing all of them. And just, it it was like, what are we doing here? What are we doing to this next generation that we're trying to, yeah. to raise differently? <laughs> Like, is there an end? Yeah. It, it just, I was like, the cycles, they're coming back. It's the cycles. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nero. We're reintroduced to Nero on this throne. He has, like, his beard oiled, and he, like, looks really presentable. Um, this might this actually connects to Zeus at the end. And when we see Zeus in the throne room, I believe Apollo also says that his beard has been oiled, mm. and it's very black, and it looks very nice. And I just, his speech bef- during the scene where he cuts her hands off... This time I will do things differently. I will bring back traditional Roman values. I will stop worrying about good and evil. The people who survive the transition, they will love me like a father. And I find the word father, like I just, I hone in on the word father, like in this book. And I feel like the only other time that it really is in it, sans maybe Meg talking to Nero, the only other time is literally when Apollo is talking to Zeus um, on 362 and he goes yes father I wondered if the word father sounded as bad as it tasted Um, and I just feel like the way Nero appears in this scene this final scene it almost feels like a parody of Olympus like he's making not that he's trying to make fun like he's just he's the joke himself and he's not realizing Mm -hmm. it he's like this parody of the way Olympus is he's doing such a good job of 
acting out how Zeus probably appears in his bad moments. Like, no one's gonna say that, like, Zeus is a angry, like, kitschy guy bouncing up and down on his couch when he's angry, but, like, I feel like that's probably what he is, and everybody's too scared to say it, and I feel like Nero is really portraying that Mm. when we eventually get to Zeus's throne room. It just feels too similar. Yeah. Yeah, we have been talking about each of these books as, like, sort of being representative of a, a portion of a Percy Jackson book, and... I mean, my first thought reading this book was that it was sort of representative of, you know, the final battle, and then we go up to Olympus. That's the the structure of the book. But then I realized mm-hmm. that basically the entire book is the return to Olympus, because Nero's tower is Olympus. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Meg is going through that return to Olympus, and Apollo later on will go through that return. We also, while we're fighting uh, Nero in this scene, is when we start talking about that that line that I think you brought up, Emily. Nero had been shaped and manipulated by an even stronger abuser. Mm. But we're just talking specifically about Python. <laughs> and in my head, I was, like, trying to do the the whole, like, okay, if Nero is, is supposed to be sort of Kronos in this situation, does that make him, does that make Python, like, Uranus? Or, like, what <laughs> what is the what is the comparison here? I feel like that almost um, works for me, though, because, like, they when they encounter chaos at the end, like in the in at least like Hesiod mm-hmm. and Ovid, like that's where the that's the beginning chaos. Yeah, it's like chaos, then Uranus, then Kronos. You know. Yeah, that was the exact uh, end of my sentence. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but basically, it was uh, on a metaphorical level. We were kind of taking it all the way back to the beginning of creation, like fighting our way backward through tyrant after tyrant all the way back to the brink of chaos and then theoretically being left with a clean slate to move forward with. Although the metaphor doesn't totally graft onto what comes later. Yeah. Yeah. So we finally get the battle with Python, which I've always loved this battle. It's just full of impossibility. (laughs) Like it's it's just full mythology what's going on here. Like there is nothing there's nothing human that's going on (laughs) in this fight scene. Yeah. And I think thinking about it that way makes sense to me too, because this is the Apollo myth. Mm -hmm. And also like Python is also sort of intended as a primordial monster in force. Like in linguistics, this battle, this like the dragon slaying myth is one of the oldest myths we have in the Western canon. It's one of the ones that we know has been passed down from the beginning, essentially. So, like, this is a primordial battle. This is, like, an establishing myth. And then, like, Python isn't a snake. Python is, like, the monster. Python is, like, the ultimate monster, essentially, in this kind of canon, in, like, the Western canon of mythology. And it's, like, in doing this impossible task that Apollo establishes himself as a god in mythology. So it makes sense to me that this is the way he reestablishes himself at the end of this series. Yeah, it feels like less of a like piece of his character arc and more just like an obstacle that he has to get through. And in in the Hymn to Apollo, it's like barely a battle too. So it feels like right. <laughs> There's much more of a battle going on in this book than there ever was in the Hymn to Apollo. It's basically just like, oh, and then he shot the serpent, he killed it. And then it's like spends forever establishing like, oh, and this is why Delphi is called Delphi because there was, he changed into a dolphin and flopped on a ship at one point. Like that whole part, the dolphin story is like way longer than the Python part. I, I was thinking a lot about, like, in the first book when Apollo says that that version of the story isn't even true. 
Like, that's just what he told people mm-hmm. at the end of everything. I, I found it interesting that, like, this battle was so otherworldly that he still, like, couldn't actually really tell us what was going on. <laughs> the Python battle will always remain a mystery. <laughs> but one of my favorite moments from this scene is the sticks moment. Just the fact that she urges him to hold on to... I forget what she urges him to hold on to, but I, I interpret it as holding on to the lesson he learns on Earth and the lessons of humanity. And I just, the scene boggles me that he remembers pulling himself up and then he immediately wakes up um, on Olympus like two weeks later and nobody knows what happened, not even Zeus. Mm. And I, I turn that scene around in my mind constantly. I just find it very interesting. Mm. For them to be such a big gap of time and for no one to have seen what happened, I just find it very, very wild. Mm. Because, and especially since we, like, we're dealing with all of these things one after the under, other at the end of the book, like, from across the whole series, across the five books, it's like, first we deal with Nero, then we deal with Python, now we de- deal with Styx, now we're gonna deal with Zeus, and then we're gonna go through all the demigods just to slaughter in there. It's, it's an interesting time for it to come up. Yeah. Again, I, I sort of wrote this down because it was my prediction when I was taking notes on this part, but when he mentions that he and Python, like, fall into the Styx... I wrote down, I wonder if the come back to me promise that he makes Meg is what gets him out of this. Like, yeah. I was sitting there and I was like, I think that makes sense to me because she is the goddess of promises. Like, I feel like she's painted as the villain because Apollo has made rash promises. But I think where we leave her, I really liked because she's not a bad goddess. She just holds you to promises. And I think those promises can be good ones, too. Yeah, I, f- I feel like we, I mean, we've spent a lot of this series talking about promises. I feel like it's actually sort of explicit in this scene that it was his promise to Meg that mm. he would be back for her. Or he says that, like, he, he'd promised Meg. And then I, I actually went back to see where he'd made the promise. And he never actually said that he promised. But we've seen him, like, in these books sort of learn the power of his words, especially in the last couple books, like, especially in The Burning Maze like we talked about, that just saying those words to Meg was a promise to him. It was the same as swearing on the river stick. Anything that he says he's going to do, he's going to do now. Yeah, the way that I was interpreting this scene was very, like, part of me wondered if he was almost on his own rebuilding his immortality because we see him, like, in the sticks. Python, I think that's actually kind of what defeats Python because he, like, disintegrates after that. But mm. Apollo thinks of Meg while in the river as his sort of tether and then comes out of it. And I, I was paying very close attention. I was like, is he going to get injured at all for the rest of the scene? And he wasn't. Like, there was no injury ever mentioned <laughs> for the rest of the scene. Oh, that's big brained. I was like, I feel like he's building his own immortality back. And that, you know, when Styx shows up at the end and sort of relieves him of whatever burden she she kind of put on him after he made his promise it's um that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle like the last unresolved part of all of this is sticks like seeing in her own waters that confirmation that even without an explicit promise apollo is now a man who keeps his word and who will do what he says that he's going to do down here on earth and so his job is done here oh i like that a lot he Achilles is himself. That's, that's really good because I I thought about the scene a million times and I just couldn't figure it out to my like for me. 
that's that's great. So Apollo wakes up on Olympus with Artemis. Loved the moment with Artemis. I know. Oh, I love them. It's, it's and the hunter's outfit. It's yeah. so funny. It's cute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he is told that all of the Olympians are waiting for him in the throne room, and he is now fully a god again. But he doesn't like remember how to be a god. And he's like self-conscious mm-hmm. almost. It's yeah. We talked a lot about in uh, the Hidden Oracle about Apollo's relationship to his body because mm-hmm. in book one when he like woke up as Lester he was like what like it was uncomfortable and totally new to him to have any sort of bodily sensation Mm -hmm. and then here with Apollo we have him missing his scars and saying that he felt more comfortable as Lester and that like being in this body just feels wrong it kind of gives you hope that you know I feel like a lot of little things in the scene gives you hope that he's going to make good on his promise or what he remembers because he just feels so out of place Mm -hmm. yeah and then we get uh, the scene that we've been hinting at for this entire episode, <laughs> where Apollo makes it back to the throne room and ends up having his conversation with mainly with Zeus. Thoughts, feelings. <laughs> I have so many thoughts on this scene. Not only the conversation what just with just Zeus, but the conversation that he has with the other Olympians, the way that they all act with one another, the mm-hmm. way that like the air in the throne room is. It just feels like. I feel, and this, you know, this travels back to other series, I feel like the Olympians, as the series has gotten longer and bigger, that we've become to understand more of them and their personalities. Like, in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, they're so, they're not necessarily closed off, but they feel like more godly figures. Mm -hmm. And, like, the further we get, the more they feel like the kids' parents instead of the godly figures. And I feel like this seriousness that we once knew of them has definitely broken down they just feel very lived in at this point. Mm-hmm. Hera and Zeus being a prime example, like she's literally upset with him. She's literally fighting with him. And he said, I didn't kill him, woman. Zeus thundered. That was Caligula. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that brings back the similarities between Nero and Zeus. Mm-hmm. Nero's manipulative dialogue this entire time, as um, I believe you said, Emily, is that he's like been pushing everything away from him and he's been detracting this entire book and then we suddenly like we immediately get Zeus detracting and saying well I didn't do it Mm. Caligula did it and I know there's been discussions before about like how much the gods how much responsibility they have towards heroes but I feel like in this case the responsibility does end up on Zeus even though it may have been Jason's fate I feel like in a way like Zeus still did kill him it's Zeus's fault that he died and like I feel like there's no let up of this concept because Hera literally acts like the blame is on him. Mm-hmm. She's upset with only him. She's glad that Apollo got like vengeance or or did something about it. Like she's a goddess should understand like that Zeus doesn't have power over it. And yet she is mad at him and I just feel like that creates another similarity and just shows that like they're more involved than they let on maybe and i i I love this line just the gods let out a collective sigh as much as we pretended to be a council of 12 in truth we were a tyranny zeus was less a benevolent father and more an iron-fisted leader with the biggest weapons and the ability to strip us of our immortality if we offended him this line to me is so it's so incredible just because i feel like even in the earlier books, we've seen Zeus as just, again, this removed figure that, like, he is fair and he, in I believe in mythology, he is, he is, like, this symbol of justice and, like, manners and all that stuff. And the further we get into the series, at this point, it's basically saying that, like, 
all the similarities between Nero and Zeus in this book no longer are similarities. Like, it's it's saying that, like, this, this was an intentional on Rick's part. He's just blatantly stating that, like, you yeah, know, Zeus is the exact same as Nero. And I find that piece incredible because this entire book is showing us, well, if you have someone like Nero, what are you going to do with them? Um, and there's only one answer of what you have to do with them. And he's basically just saying, well, this is the exact same person. The person that you just killed and defeated, he's sitting right in the throne room. Mm-hmm. And I find that that one piece so incredible. It's just an admission. And <laughs> to have Rick build this whole series up and then just outright admit and say, yeah, this is a situation you're dealing with. And then it just the conversation that to me goes nowhere. I'm sure if you guys want to jump in there, to, to me it goes nowhere. I mean, it has meaning, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's more, even more to it as well, because I think in the throne room scene with Nero, Nero is making this case as well, like, who deserves to be a god? And that's a big question that I think, when you look at this scene, you know, you can't help but draw that conclusion as well. It's a question of, like, because I I agree with you, I do think there's only one logical place that all of this leads to, which is that Zeus needs to be deposed. And yet at the same time, There's the issue of the fact that Zeus has the power to take immortality from the gods, but they don't have that power over him. There isn't a being with power over him, but at the same time, we also sort of set up that the fates do have power over him. So I don't know, it's it's, it's a trickier conundrum to me, because... It's all, but then there's also the question of, like, how, where does it end? You know, like, you defeat Zeus, is are the fates the next big bad? Do you defeat the fates? Like, who's, who? So I think it also maybe shows that there's an inherent flaw in the way the world is structured, just because in the way this world is structured, there's always something more powerful. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we resolve that? Is there an end to the poem, or does it keep going? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the fates count as like the thing you have to defeat after Zeus because that assumes that the fates would take power if you overthrew Zeus and it's kind of implied in these chapters that the fates are just pulling from their own source of prophecy too like it's not actually coming from them. I always had this idea in mind that for just because I as much as I like as much as I'm a cabin through girly I love Zeus so much he's such a great god he's there's the mythology around him everything you know he's just he's a king of the gods you gotta love him and I feel like the only way to fix how he is in Percy Jackson is that for him to experience the same thing that Apollo Mm -hmm. experienced and that that personally is what I always thought the ending was headed towards not necessarily like Mm. killing him but forcing him through his own trials perhaps turning him into a mortal and stuff like that. I feel like if it had to go anywhere and there was an actual ending, it could have been that. Yeah. My thing with this ending, or really, my my thing with this comparison between Nero and Zeus is that the shift in power just, like, isn't possible there. And that, like, because Zeus will never die. And I was thinking, like, you know, Nero died. And when we were talking about the emperors, we were talking about how, like, Marcus Aurelius died, and that's how Commodus came into power. And then what's-his-name was killed at the beginning (laughs) of the burning (laughs) maze. And, like, that was how we saw change happen. And so it was, like, for example, earlier, there's a line that Apollo has when they defeat Nero, um, where he says, I considered that perhaps courage was a self-perpetuating cycle like abuse. Nero had hoped to create miniature tortured versions of himself because that made him feel stronger. Meg had found the strength to oppose him. 
because she saw how much her foster siblings needed her to succeed to show them another way. And I was like, that only works because Nero is not there anymore. Like, we, we end the series in a way that's like, oh, Apollo will be able to sort of cause change from on the inside, he'll be able to be different than his father, and it's like, you can't really do that because he's still there. <laughs> like, he's still yeah. in charge, he's still doing all of it. I don't know, I was reading this ending feeling like, in another story, I might have said that this was the whole point. That, like, you're left thinking about the fact that nothing has changed and that nothing will change. And that, you know, now we've seen a man like Zeus be taken down and know that it's possible, but know that the work will never end because there's always someone with more power behind them. Or like, you know, we we're left with a sort of ambiguous ending and that's the point. The fact that we don't know that if, whether Apollo will remember or not, maybe in, in that world, this ending would have made more sense. But I feel like that's not the story that we're telling here. No. The, the Olympus scene for Trials of Apollo, it fulfills Apollo's character. Absolutely. Like, the whole, all the things that he learned, it fulfills it. If you take it and apply it to the entire Chronicles, it doesn't fulfill anything. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to deal with. It's it's hard because you, you read this ending, and it's obviously sort of a parallel of uh, Percy at the end of The Last Olympian talking to Zeus. And Zeus making his promise at the end and everything. And, like, mm -hmm. the fact that we've seen this sort of, like, and things will get better in the future ending and it mm -hmm. clearly nothing got better and we saw proof of that it's hard to believe this ending it's so strange this is why i'm saying that this series is so strange this book is such a strange ending because it just sets you up so clearly for like okay now we're going to hate zeus like <laughs> and does everyone hate zeus now cool and then the book ends <laughs> yeah it's like it's 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 a it's it's a cliffhanger for the end of a series. How, right. that, how you accomplish that, I don't know, but Rick did it. <laughs> it's like the Looney Tunes end card. It's like the end with clown music playing across it. That's kind of what That's it feels like That's how I feel when I finish the <laughs> I'm like, maybe someday if he writes, you know, that fourth series, <laughs> or if he writes a standalone novel that takes place after all of this, and it does deal with this, then I'll look back on this this ending for this scene and be like, this was interesting. Like, this was kind of cool to, like, set it up in a way yeah. where it's like, now what do we do? Mm -hmm. Like, and you yeah. as the reader know what, you, what has to be done now. Like, that's kind of a cool feeling to just be like, okay, sit in that for a minute. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, like, know that that person's still in power to, like, make you angry. That's fun. But if there's no resolution to that or like a just a thought or of overthrowing Zeus or doing anything about any of this that doesn't like it doesn't even cross someone's mind it just it really leaves it feeling like where can we go from here like not just for ourselves but for everybody like I, I feel like I feel like the point of like there or at least the way I read the the point of this ending is that you personally can overcome an abusive dynamic and you can distance yourself you can make a change in yourself and be better but it's all kind of deflated by the fact that the cycle is going to continue everywhere around him like the new generation of demigods is already being led to war and the olympians are as afraid of zeus as ever and all of the changes that we see apollo making are all just within his personal bubble with just this thought of like i'll be a better person than my dad ever was but like your dad is still going to be there for forever. So it's just not like a one-to-one -one comparison. I feel like it's interesting because I had a bit of a different takeaway from the ending. 
Oh, go for it. I'm just thinking about Lou a lot as a character when you were saying all this, which I didn't really talk about her and her background historically, but the short version is basically she as a Gaul is a really interesting character because the Romans essentially just completely wiped out her culture and just absorbed it into their own. Like, they're Germanic tribes that still survived the Romans because they were able to continu- continuously fight them off. And, like, eventually Celtic, some, some others, like, were able to come through and they're the ones that ultimately, like, sacked Rome and all of that stuff by the um, end of the Western Roman Empire. But, like, Lou's culture, again, like, the only real text we have on it is written by Julius Caesar, the man that is literally responsible for its, like, genocide and destruction. And I thought her inclusion here was really interesting because it felt like the Gauls coming back to finally really destroy the Roman Empire. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I just think that that was sort of what I was thinking about a lot, is, like, she's been kept in Nero's household, biding her time, waiting, and then it's, like, the moment she was finally able to come back and just, like, like, take charge again and, like, come back and have vengeance and also to, like, have justice in that way. And I, I think also, I was thinking also a lot uh, just now because she's also sort of presented as, like, this inside agent in Nero's household. So part of me made me also, like, the ending of the series, I didn't find the ending of this book to be that unsatisfying. It's like this thing where he's also in a way sort of this inside agent. And it's also interesting because there's, like, a long-standing history of, like, sons of the great father in mythology being the ones to overthrow their fathers. So it almost feels like... And not yet, but it's coming. Maybe in a few thousand years, like the Lou case, maybe we'll mm-hmm. see what happens. Maybe the world will shift. Maybe beliefs will shift. Maybe Zeus will no longer have this chokehold on society. And that's when we'll strike and make really be able to make a change. But I do think it speaks to the way Western civilization and all of this is still tied in our society. It's like, I feel like you almost can't write it because our world hasn't dealt with that either our society currently as we are is the one that's propping up the gods like i feel like it's not there yet sure but i i it wouldn't have been an issue for me to see at least a hint of how we're going to deal with this man that would have worked for me though if he'd found a way to reverse the curse on zeus and it'd be like for a hundred years or something and then like apollo kind of can take the role of the sun taking over even if it's like kind of a temporary measure but is like able to bring that forward and like change things from within like i could see that that would have been satisfying to me although it would be we we talked a bit in our um dark prophecy episode about whether apollo would ever actually want power though mm-hmm. and like i don't know if he, i would be like oh apollo should be in charge i mean he should be but like i don't know if that's something that he would want at all yeah. I, w- I wouldn't say he'd want it either. I'd be no on that on that one. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not even really what I'm asking for. All I'm I'm I don't need to see a full revolution on page or even him being like forced down to earth at the end to learn this all for himself. I'm just looking for more of just an implication that Apollo is now going to try to cause change from within. All we really get is like I'm going to be better than my dad. But after all these comparisons to Nero and to tyrants, you just want a hint at what comes next or like a thought on how do we make sure that the cycle doesn't continue here on Olympus where there is no natural cycle of life and death to ensure that change happens and that we don't where we don't have like we talked about that like mortal drive toward change. Maybe that's 
That's the secret next series. That's uh, mm. mm-hmm. listen. Yeah. He does five act structures, Phoebe. Why would this be a trilogy series? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so then we get Apollo have, doing a little tour to see where everyone's at. Yeah. Uh, first, he heads to Camp Half Blood. There were a couple of lines that I wrote down here because this this chapter we have two lines: one from Apollo and one from Will. Apollo at one point says to Mr. D um, that he has faith in our ability to write our own stories. And then Will later on says, no story ever really ends, does it? Which is so Chuck at the end of Swan Song of Him. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get into storytelling much more in uh, The Sun and the Star. But I found it interesting that we were returning to, like, in these very last chapters, to this idea of, like, writing your own stories and agency mm-hmm. in your own story. Especially because, like, the very last part of the book is, like, explicitly written, like, dear reader. Yeah. Just this, like, final acknowledgement of the fact that this is a story that we're being told. Because that's how, like, this series was sort of presented to us, that, like, trying to release the oracles was our way of, like, granting ourselves some agency in our fates. And that is an aspect that I don't feel like we returned to very often. It was, like, how we set it up, but it wasn't really how we talked about it a lot of the time. So I'm glad we came back to it at the end. In terms of the other visits, like I said before, I, I do like where we leave everybody. The big ones I want to mention are Piper's ending and the Percy and Annabeth scene. Yeah. I love this Piper scene. I was like, oh my, that one was my favorite one. one. I I remember when this, this was, this part was spoiled for me. And I remember I was having such Mm. a like weird off day. Like I, the whole day I was in a weird funk. And then that spoiler came out. And it was like immediately I was so happy. I was so like, I was like, this is the best spoiler I could have received. Thank you so much for spoiling that for me. Which is just not the reaction I've ever had to any spoiler in my life. But I was so happy. (laughs) Yeah. I loved that she's kissing a girl under the stars. I love that she's, because it feels like she's rewriting that Mm -hmm. piece, you know, that that first story of her and Jason of like their first kiss. So it feels like she's finally like reclaiming that, like really reclaiming Mm -hmm. it. She's really like building something with everything and i i love that for her you know this whole series of fates and things being pre-written and everything being destined Mm -hmm. and all that and then piper as just like uncertainty manifest and being like i don't know what's gonna happen okay bye apollo Mm -hmm. (laughs) like just kind of being like i don't know i'm figuring it out on my own yeah it's just it's cool to see a character end the story like that with like you know every other character has like a handle on what their future probably looks like and piper has none and is fine with that like on piper i have no clue what the future has in store for her while i i kind of understand what everyone else has in store for them and so i i like having it end with piper there um percy and annabeth uh (laughs) it's like i i wouldn't have any problem with them ending up at you know new rome university or any of that as like their actual ending it's more like on an emotional level i haven't seen them fully you know i haven't seen them fully cope with anything that's happened and that's not at all (laughs) just the way that he handled percy and annabeth makes me think that they're not fine as much as they're pretending to be like moving on and being happy they just seem they just don't seem okay and i found it very crazy to end the book um his like the end of the book, not only for Tower of Nero, but the, for the Chronicles, with this two, like, 
favorite heroes that everyone loves to have them not be okay at the ending is also just a big it wowed me at the time i just find it really crazy because like out of everyone that should be okay i feel like percy and annabeth are the oldest they have the best handle they should be okay but it seems like all their other demigod friends are better off than them and that also was just wow because they're like they're the characters so for me though it's it's so weird because i didn't What's weird is the fact that nothing's weird. It's not, it's not like that anything on the page is wrong with them. It's the fact that nothing feels weird about them. <laughs> because the last time we saw these two before Chalice of the Gods came out was, what is it? House of Hades, we got to be in their heads for the last time. Blood of Olympus, mm. we got like sort of an idea and we said that they were in a really strange place. We like, we ended that series being like, something is wrong. <laughs> There's so much that's still left for us to do here and for them to do here and like they need to resolve that. And then we read Chalice of the Gods and we were like, it's still there. They still didn't talk about it, but we yeah. focused mainly on Percy for this book. So like, okay, hopefully they keep doing that. So like it really at the end of the day, it depends on how I feel about this scene depends on what happens in the next two little books that happened before Trials of Apollo. But as it is right now, we go mm. from that to Trials of Apollo where Percy is like fully like I'm not involving myself in any of this anymore and is like the way he's written in in uh, the Hidden Oracle I really like mm. the way that he's written in that book because he's like you can feel how much he just doesn't want anything to do with any of this anymore and when I saw that Jason had died I was like he can't react well to that for multiple reasons mm. one is that he refused the call to action and Jason took it up and then died because of it and it's like that's gotta be a whole <laughs> that's gonna be a whole thing for him and then it was like he clearly has a little bit of resentment toward the gods and is like just trying to separate himself from them because rather than this ending where he probably thought it was supposed to at the end of the last olympian they've just kept coming back and they've just kept using him and then he hears that's exactly why jason is dead now it's like mm. i was like he can't come out of that and just be like that's sad <laughs> And like him and Annabeth act like, okay, off to school. I was like, hang on. <laughs> there is so much more yeah. going on here. And the fact that they act normal is exactly what's not normal here. That's fair. I did get a slightly weird vibe when we're, we're when they're first in Sally and Paul's apartment, when they see Estelle, when there's the photo of Percy, Annabeth, and Grover, like all smiling in the yes. car. And I was like, didn't they know that Jason said, we what didn't are they talk doing? about this. Grover knew. <laughs> Oh my god, you're right! Grover knew that whole road trip. Oh, that's weird. You forgot. He just forgot. I, he had to forget. But the thing is that, like, Apollo looks at that photo and says, our mutual friend Grover. So it's like, no, you remember. <laughs> yeah, you're right! Okay, because I saw them all smiling in the picture, and I was like, oh my god, wouldn't they be, like, a little more sad? Like, because I, I thought originally they're heading back for the for Jason reasons. I, like, kind of completely forgot about the fact that they'd be, like, New, New Rome University. Yeah. That's... And then they found out when they got to California. Grover didn't tell them. Grover spent that entire road trip keeping it to himself. See, that's that's a book I'd read. That's a book I want to read so bad. That is the book I need, actually, to make this right. <laughs> it can even be a road trip short story. I would take that. So the last visit that Apollo makes is to Meg. Meg, I had, I had some feelings on. Specifically because of what I said earlier about, like, Meg as a part of the imperial household and then at the end sort of being the head of it in like a slightly twisted sort of way where it's like all of mm. these kids that Nero has adopted all come back to Meg's 
house and are living there together and yeah you know this idea of meg as like being adopted by the emperor and potentially being like the next emperor as now that nero has been killed but it's just like she's sort of the successor but in a way of like she's just taking care of all of these kids now yeah i mean she's a successor in the way we kind of wish apollo was with zeus right like she's the one she defeated him and now she's making things better mm-hmm. she's healed she's trying to get everyone to heal to break the cycle yeah. and i love that i love that as her ending I love how physically affectionate Apollo and Meg are. I think it's really cute. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, I really feel like they're like siblings by the end. Like they are like, they love each other, like brother and sister. Like they are. They're one of the most successful and authentic relationships that are in like any of these books. Yeah. Like they, they're in my top three. Cool. Every book that we read, uh, we assign it a bead, um, mm-hmm. like as if the the book was given a bead at the end of the summer so if you were to design a bead based on this book what would you put on it can i give multiple answers go or for do it I have to decide yes on one? no <laughs> okay i was gonna say like i would want to put the arrow of dodona mm. or apollo's lyre as like a symbol of him not that he necessarily uses the lyre but like just to symbolize him just because i feel like like the whole series is about him but this is really to me like his book of like coming full circle like returning to you know returning to new york and overcoming all the things that like petrified in this entire series um destroying nero and and python and coming back to olympus and just handling it all beautifully as best as he could Mm. my first thought is like nero's axe whatever it's called his magical axe (laughs) oh the fascus yeah like, I almost want it to be, like, the throne room, but I, I don't want to draw that on a bead. <laughs> I think my beads, like, lose tattoos. Like, the blue, like, interlocking stuff, like, the Celtic symbols. Like, Rome couldn't kill. You mentioned something about a horror movie? Yes. We've also been... <laughs> we've been uh, assigning each of these books a horror genre, like, a, a type of horror movie. I'd have to choose between psychological horror and survival horror. Just because, you know, like, Nero and Zeus and, like, even, like, Mithras, this, like, everything was, like, you were always guessing and everything was this way and that. And you felt comfortable, like, the plan was going, like, everything was going according to plan. And then Nero all of a sudden, like, flips the switch and he starts telling them their plan back to him. And it's just, like, you couldn't get comfortable in this book. Like, it was really toying with your mind as as the people, like, as the characters were toying with each other. And then also survival horror specifically because... Or is it torture horror? Specifically because of what happens to Lou. Yeah. Um, I would yeah. I would label this as that just because it's so violent and it's so gory. Yeah. I love that. That is so much better than what I was thinking because I was just like, it's a big house. It's like one of those horror movies that happen in a big house. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so true, though. <laughs> they really can't escape the tower, so. <laughs> like, it's a little bit ready or not. I don't <laughs> Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you, Ashley, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. This was so great. It's literally like, this is so much fun. Please tell the people where they can find you. Yeah, plug anything that you want to. <laughs> Just new Athens um, on Tumblr.com. You probably won't find me anywhere else on the internet um, unless you dredge up a really old, like I said before, DeviantArt account, then I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to find you IRL and do something about that. <laughs> <laughs>
But if you love our analysis, I'm sure there are so many posts that Ashley has made that you will also love uh, that are also deep dive into so many different aspects of the series. Yeah, you can hear what she really thinks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you can definitely go down a rabbit hole in the um, newathens.tumblr.com forward slash tag forward slash PJO. You can really go down the whole rabbit hole there. <laughs> Next time. Next time. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Next time. Next time we're talking about episode one. I accidentally vaporized my pre-algebra teacher. Cannot believe it's already here. That's crazy. I can't wait to just like break it down. I love, like I obviously I love breaking down (laughs) books because they're my first love. But I just, I love breaking down a TV show. I love breaking Mm -hmm. down a script. That's my job. (laughs) We're we're finally getting into what my job is. (laughs) (laughs) in the very short wait we have between this episode dropping in the show um please send us any questions or analyses you want to be included or you want to be included in our eventual wrap-up episode Mm -hmm. also if you have already uh given us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to our podcast we really appreciate it that helps us out a lot if you haven't yet and you want to share some love that would be fantastic also, if you know you want to recommend us to a friend, um, we'd always love to keep the conversation going. We've also we officially have a Patreon where you can find right now a compilation of every time we talked about spoilers when we shouldn't have, <laughs> and I had to cut it, and a predictions episode for the TV show. And that's where I will be posting my my full uncut reactions. <laughs> I'll be posting my reactions <laughs> to each episode. Um, at least that's the plan. So check us out. And last but not least, if you want to pick us up uh, some Monster Donut merch, uh, that's on our link tree and monsterdonut.revival.com. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye, everyone. Have fun tonight. Bye. <laughs>